The following interview was recorded on June 9th, 2016. I interviewed Professor of Law Gregory C. Keating of the University of Southern California. Professor Keating joined the USC Law Faculty in 1991. He teaches torts, legal ethics, and seminars in legal and political philosophy. He takes an interest in the remedies aspect of the VW diesel scandal, which, since the, this interview was conducted, has since settled. Professor Keating graduated summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa from Amherst College, and earned an, an MA and a PhD from the Department of Politics at Princeton University, where he specialized in legal and political philosophy. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School. So, Greg, thank you for being on the podcast and welcome. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be asked. So um, I think what most people around the world are interested in hearing is how uh, this large legal and also an ethical problem could arise in a company uh, so big and so famous as VW. Well, I think it is mind-boggling. But I th think what happens in a case like this is once you get started, you have no way of extricating yourself without admitting that you've been engaged in an ongoing pattern of violating the environmental laws and deceiving the public, and that's never attractive. So you just keep on going in the hope that somehow you'll get out of it. You'll come up with a fix, and it'll be 10 years after you fixed it that anybody discovered you had cars that were out of compliance. I think that's what happens. And so you think even internally that at you know, some point in time it must have been a fairly small deal, so you, you think even once it had gotten started, you think they just didn't think, okay, this is not, not the way we should do things, we better stop now before it gets to be too much of a situation? So this is a little bit outside my field, but, but I think we could learn a lot from a really valuable um, investigation that discovered what went on, because something has to happen where everyone feels they have an incentive not to know so there has to be somebody who knows, and other people who uh, start to know think this is the last thing in the world I want to know because it could only make my life miserable. And for whatever reasons, the, inst the institution's set up in such a way that that's very easy to do. And I don't know why that is. It's got to be something about the nature of bureaucratic behavior in this institution, but um, understanding that would be a key to figuring out what you do internally to thwart it. Interesting, um, and it's also interesting what, you know, of course we don't know yet, but we'll hopefully one day find out after litigation, but who knew what? For instance, the former chairman of the board of directors, Mr. Martin Winterkorn, has said repeatedly that he didn't know of this misconduct. And um, do you think that's a plausible statement or is that sort of... Yes, I think it's very plausible because um, even in the most Machiavellian version of this, there would be a wink and a nod. So there's a naive version in which the engineers do this because this is the only way that they can meet various production or sales goals. Um, they think, well, we got to sell at a certain price point and we don't have technology that will make it clean, so we'll rig the emission test and we'll fix it down the road. When you do that, you don't t tell people you're cheating because you're outing yourself. But if you think the order to do this is from coming on high, I think you'd also think, and they need to preserve deniability. So I think there are lots of ways where he wouldn't know, even if somebody high up had induced the behavior. 
um, in a way that we might think is unmistakable once you once you understand it. Right. So what you're saying is he put pressure maybe, or the uh, the top level uh, management put pressure on the employees to perform and sort of. Just right. Be, be. I think what we know, or what I know, doesn't go to the point of saying that the, say, CEO knew. Right, but right. this story starts in the early recounting of it with the CEO saying, I want to make VW the largest um, automaker in the world. I want to beat Toyota. Clean diesel is um, at the center of this strategy. And we have to sell clean diesel at a price point that other companies that sell diesel like Audi, BMW, Mercedes, well, Audi's the same uh, larger company, but uh, don't sell. And that put a lot of pressure on engineering to meet sales targets, and they abandoned a technology which has been proven and I think is used by both Mercedes and BMW. They abandoned it's too expensive and said, we have a cheaper technology, and they didn't. Now, that doesn't say the CEO knew, but it does say that this very ambitious sales goal was the original impetus in some important way for what happened. The competition certainly is very fierce in the auto industry, so so that's entirely plausible. At some point in time, though, and I think you're hinting at this also yourself, somebody must have known and somebody must also have known that this is wrong. Um, so I know your area of expertise might not be uh, German or even American whistleblowing, but I'm just curious anyway for the uh, listener's sake, Do you think, you know, what, you know, so this is what's being debated also a lot in this country. What about, let's start with internal whistleblowing. Why is it that there was no, apparently no system in place uh, where an employee could have said, look, we're doing this, this is wrong, you know, we should stop it. Uh, or do you think that was, but it, like you said, it was simply too late. The train was already, had left the station. So I, I don't know, and I would have to speculate, but one guess you might have is it's a separate operation Right, the whistleblowing operation mm -hmm. is so we have a department of compliance, right? And you got to make sure your nose is clean when you're around the department of compliance. Right. And so people keep their noses clean around the department of compliance. And the alternative way you could think about it is no, at every stage of the decision, mm -hmm. incorporated in the decision is a, the relevant ethics aspect, right? Mm -hmm. But I think if you separate them, you can imagine these things happening and it's not very uncommon from say in universities there are athletic scandals right right well there's always the department of compliance right but usually somebody manages to scam the department of compliance uh, and mm -hmm. whether the department of compliance was too lax or just was outplayed you know that's always the issue but right. but if you have two departments i think you can imagine how the people who are being monitored get pretty good at looking as if they're complying um without necessarily complying, that that's a capacity they develop. Yeah. I have to say, though, I'm speculating. Sure. No, it's just, and I think everyone is at this stage, but uh, but it's just interesting, again, how this could have happened. What about external uh, whistleblowing and drawing an analogy to this country sort of legally, instead of uh, notifying corporate management itself, could employees maybe uh, just you know do something as simple as anonymously contact a government entity, and then the government entity could step in and you know, yes. do something and, as simple you know, This was eventually discovered because of testing by, I think it was the California Emissions Board testing, where they couldn't replicate VW's results um, with live road tests. Uh, and what's remarkable is how long it took right. for that to happen, right. which I assume is because of insufficient resources for the California Air Quality Board to 
check every car on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think you could tip somebody on the outside that way. And um, Is it your feeling that people do that, or do they fear for their jobs, or do they just perhaps, as some are saying, feel that it's all in vain and it's not their problem, so they don't even bother because they know governments have limited resources, so you know, so they don't do it? So I think people actually draw a very big distinction between not doing something that's wrong themselves and outing other people. Right? And mm-hmm. so I think many people feel you know, it's a good Samaritan problem. Mm-hmm. I don't have to step in and um, at personal cost to myself right. um, save the world from a bad thing. Right. Um, I should keep my hands clean, and that's all I'm obligated to mm-hmm. do. Interesting. Yeah. I would suspect that there are drawbacks because if you are discovered Mm-hmm. to be the person who gave the anonymous tip that unless you're discovered late in the day and you emerge as a hero, you're a goat inside the company and, um, you know, it's good for the world and bad for you. Right, right, yeah. So the risk that people perhaps reasonably don't want to run. Uh, what about uh, the remedies aspect? What do you think first uh, the company could do to uh, fix this problem right now? Do you think, can they at all? What about their corporate value? Or is it... How bad is well, this I, I think in the modern world, people forget things pretty quickly. So I would be surprised if five years from now, this were about as relevant as ancient history. Um, so I don't think that they're going to take a you know a long run hit. And I'm, I would think the German government would not allow this company to fail anyway. So they'll get back on their feet. Um, in terms of remedies, the unusual thing about the remedy here is there's actually no way that VW can sell the can give the customers now the car that it told them it was selling them because what it told them was it was selling them a car which was green you know ecologically um, a desirable car because it had very low emissions and which had sort of german performance that we associate with VW but with Porsche and BMW you know it's a, it's a special breed of car And as I understand all the fixes, you can fix the emissions problem, but you can't fix the emissions problem and retain the fuel economy and the performance. So there's no way they can actually give um, customers the car that they told customers they were selling them. Right. So um, so in your opinion, what should then a remedy be? Should people get their money back? Because I think there a class action lawsuit or probably several have been filed as far as I right. know for that uh, reason. But what, what should the So, so I think the um, consumers should be at their election. That is, they should be able to elect to have the car repaired and, and brought into compliance with um, you know, environmental regulations and then some compensation for having been sold a car that wasn't as represented, which would have to be a kind of stereotyped number, but enough for it to be significant. Um, Or VW should have to buy the car back. That is, they should be able to force VW to buy the car back. And I would add to that, somewhere, somebody, I hope, has jurisdiction to prevent these cars from all ending up in the third world, which I don't know about. But but I think that would be the... uh, an appropriate kind of remedy. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What about the remedy towards the shareholders? Because they've also suffered at least maybe long ter- uh, short-term rather uh, problems with this. And you said it might the problem might remedy itself, but you know what about? Well, so they're the so that's a separate question. That's really whether the shareholders have an effect at kind of securities fraud um, lawsuit against management. Mm-hmm. And management, of course, didn't disclose that they were 
committing consumer fraud, but then the question is, did management know, right? right? Um, but don't they have, though, you know, it was a business risk that this happened. Isn't management uh, liable for preventing any kind of risk to so happen to the company? I don't know enough about um, the relevant securities law. I, I tend to think that uh, it's difficult to get uh, far into negligence in terms of its relation to misrepresentation uh, on, a, on a successful theory of recovery. So I think it's more risk in the sense that when you invest in a company, you take your chances that the company may be up to no good in ways that you can't hold anybody accountable for. I suspect that's where this one falls. Right. It might very well be. It's interesting. So really, shareholders can't really do anything. The employees can't really do anything. We'll see what consumers can do. Maybe not so much. So so do you think then that means that VW won't really, like you said, face any, you know, any really long-term, you know, financial or image-like uh, problems from this at all? Um, so that's a very, that's the most important question is, um, because if you think about it, we have pretty significant examples with the auto industry. And in some ways, this is less bad because they didn't endanger anybody's lives. Um, there was just a Japanese company that was discovered to be cheating on its fuel economy statements. Um, that's similar. But I'm thinking of things like the sudden acceleration or the GM ignition locks. And you have these patterns where uh, an original wrong is committed. What's unusual here is this was intentional by somebody. You, you don't do this accidentally. But in many cases, it's just a mistake. You design a defective ignition, and you don't discover it's defective until you've sold a lot of cars with it being defective. But at that point, you don't recall. You don't um, alert the public. You just keep putting them out there. And so people get killed. And when it all comes to light, the usual pattern, but not the invariant pattern, is you get whacked with punitive damages in civil suits, and these days the um, federal regulatory authorities are impose pretty severe damages. And while I'm in favor in general of punitive damages in these circumstances, they're not making the situation worse. I, I think probably if you looked at the last 25 or 30 years of history, you wouldn't say the punitive damages are preventing the recurrence of the pattern. So the question of how do you prevent the recurrence of the pattern, I think if you had consistent regulatory behavior of big damages and then effectively some kind of injunctions that said, and you have to show us how you restructured your operation so this won't happen again, that's probably going to be more effective because we've been in the era of remarkably big punitive damages judgments since the original Ford Pinto case in 1981. And that hasn't stopped the pattern from repeating itself with a variety of different companies. Right. And of course, as it's also been uh, said, it also does, it doesn't make sense to let them off the hook completely, but it also doesn't make sense to run them out of business. So, you know, lots of people lose their jobs and so right. forth. So. so an awful lot of people are innocent. And if you impose punitive damages, the shareholders who really just bought the stock are going to take another whack. Now, them's the breaks. That is, it's also the case that if you buy property and there's an earthquake, <laughs> you take the hit. Um, but it's it's not a punishment in the justifiable sense. It's just you got somebody's going to have to take the hit here because the company deserves punishment. So beyond a certain point, those considerations make you think that there's nothing to be gained in punitive damages and there are real um, objections to punishing the innocent involved. 
Uh, however, these companies can pay quite big punitive damage awards without going under. And what the punitive damage award really does is say, this is serious. Um, you did something seriously wrong. Uh, that ought to be expressed, and um, that ought to make everyone look and think, well, you know, this isn't a pretty situation to get yourself into. You ought to stay out of it. So I think they're justified, um, and pretty large ones are justified, but they aren't a discerning instrument for punishing only the guilty. Right, right. But still a, a, a worthy signaling device, perhaps. To yeah, it's so a worthy you know, expression of public um, yeah. Outrage, which right. is totally justified. Right. Um, do insure? Do they have insurance uh, coverage for this? Do you think the company? And if so, if they do have insurance coverage covering liability in this case, should the insurance companies continue covering these types of things where there's both some environmental harm in the pollution, but also um, intentional wrongdoing? Or should insurance companies be able to? not cover this kind of damage. So I'm not entirely, so the United States always have a patchwork of 50 states. Right. And I believe, though it's been a long time since I looked this up, um, that the general rule is that insurance companies decline to cover punitive damages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that rule is fine for a variety of reasons. Um, it's important to have insurance to compensate the victims of wrongs, and that is the victims have a stake in that the wrongdoers be insured. But because punitive damages aren't meant to compensate, there isn't the same victim stake in them. And of course, if you add insurance on top of the other ways in which corporations disperse losses, the effect of the punishment will be dulled just because it'll be blunted. The the losses will be dispersed further. Mm-hmm. But saying all that, you still get a kind of insurance mechanism inside the company anyway, because the company pays and it disperses the cost of this across its employees, across its shareholders, across its suppliers. Um, all of that isn't so far from an insurance company dispersing it across po- uh, policyholders. Right, which leads back to what you were talking about, that you know, in the long term they will probably be able to survive this uh, crisis just fine, but, but hopefully at the same time learning a lesson from it. What about criminal liability? Do you think uh, criminal liability should be imposed if financial penalties somehow are not seen as being enough? Well, I think there's an understandable impulse at work, but my inclination is to be skeptical. Um, the understandable impulse is, gee, as a mechanism of punishment and deterrence, this civil liability and regulation are insufficient. Okay, I think, and they're insufficient because we see recurrences of this kind of pattern, not so much with the same company, but companies seem to take turns um, engaging in this kind of behavior. So I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that what we're doing is is not uh, adequately effective. However, and this may show my background as a civil liability person, I associate criminal liability with a culpable state of mind. And I think one has to be careful um, before one assumes that because a company does something that's egregiously wrong, there's a culpable state of mind in some individual who therefore warrants punishment in the way that an individual murderer does. Because what you have here is a problem of multiple hands. These are complex organizations and um, things like this happen because things fall between the stools or because people make a point of not knowing anything. And so you're asking questions about culpable ignorance and 
There are circumstances in which ignorance is so culpable that, in my view, it would justify the imposition of criminal liability, but they're unusual. It's not the normal circumstance that somebody who's ignorant of something should be punished as if they knew it and intended to do it. So that, though, was the case with the BP Gulf oil uh, scandal. Of course, people lost their lives uh, in connection with that, but criminal liability was imposed in that connection. Right, Right. and I've forgotten the details of that, but I believe there were knowledge of unsafe conditions on the behalf of particular persons um, who went ahead anyway. Now, as long as you're confident that those are the responsible persons and you're not scapegoating somebody who's just far enough down to be sacrificed, that seems to me to be um, a legitimate imposition of criminal liability. You know, I think you can also be skeptical there whether it deters because it may be that the safety person is not the person on top of the company who's exerting the gravitational pull over the culture of the company with respect to safety. But Yeah, it might be a corporate culture issue too, that's true. Um, but if that's the case, then that seems to be the case in other car companies too. Um, I think Ford too had exaggerated its uh, mileage figures, and a, a couple of other companies have come out recently, admitting that they also had misreported the gas mileage of their cars. Granted, not as egregiously as in the BW case, but uh, and I know this is not necessarily a legal question, but in your opinion, has it just come to the point where cars, regular uh, fuel-driven cars, might just it might not be possible anymore to, to make them more fuel efficient? So I'm wondering if that isn't what's going on. Yeah. Uh, if the standards are so stringent that, in fact, there's no way, at least at certain price points, to produce cars that are that fuel efficient. So you can do it with, say, hybrids, but those hybrids have to be uh, at a certain cost before you can reach that. Or you know, you're selling a certain kind of truck, it's not going to be a hybrid, and you just can't squeeze that much fuel economy out of it. I think that may be a signal that the regulation is beyond the technology that the car companies seem to be able to come up with at the moment. Mm-hmm. Or certainly they're struggling with that. So. So maybe we'll see a lot more solar-powered cars or alternative cars like that on the roads. <laughs> Professor Keating, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. This interview was recorded on June 9th, 2016, when I interviewed Professor of Law Gregory Keating of the University of Southern California.